You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you would please take your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Our New Testament reading and sermon text today will be taken from Paul's letters to the Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. May God richly bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray even one more time this morning. Oh, gracious God, we recognize that your word is living and that your word is active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. No creature is hidden from your sight. O Lord, we too recognize how sweet your word is and how it pierces our hearts, bringing your word to bear upon our soul Lord, we ask that you would accomplish your will in our lives as we study your word together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, I remember years ago listening to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson. At least I think it was Sinclair. My memory sometimes gets foggy. But in that sermon, he described the blessing of growing up in a home with a godly mother who was sincerely devoted to prayer. He described how he would slip out into the hallway at nighttime and he would peer into his mother's room 
as she knelt beside the bed, pouring her heart out to God in prayer. He explained how his understanding of God's redeeming grace was shaped, especially on those days when his rebellion became a burden upon his dear mother and how it was on those nights that he would listen to her words as she cried out to God, asking God to be merciful and to provide grace for repentance to her wayward son. Well, with that in mind, in Romans chapter 8, and again in Hebrews chapter 7, we are told that the Lord Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And it is in that position where he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. This week as I prepared my sermon, I thought to myself, you know, if only we could hear the prayers of Christ, like that young boy who was standing outside of his mother's room, if only we could hear the intercession of the Lord Jesus, how would our lives, how would our hearts be affected if we could hear the petitions of Christ as he intercedes on our behalf? Well, my friends, I don't think we really have to use our imaginations. After all, the Spirit of God provided Spirit-inspired prayers throughout the Bible that have been preserved for us so that we can hear God's Word and we can know God's heart. Last week, we were privileged to eavesdrop, if you will, on the Apostle Paul as he prayed his spirit-inspired prayers for the believers who were living at that time in the city of Ephesus. And from the time that he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and the love that they had for all of the saints, he continually gave thanks to God for them as he interceded on their behalf. Now, folks, do you remember from last week, do you remember the content, the substance of Paul's spirit-inspired prayer? He prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ so that their eyes would be flooded with light that they would be able to grasp, that they would be able to apprehend and truly know the glorious hope to which God had called them. Paul prayed that they would be able to fathom the unfathomable riches of God's inheritance that was in them. And then he prayed, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that they would be able to comprehend the incomprehensible power of God that was at work even in them. And then he went on to describe God's power as the same inconceivable power, that divine energy which God exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted him to his own right hand, to the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. 
far above all rule and authority, far above all power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under the feet of Christ and gave him to us, to the church, to be the head over all things, which is his body, the church, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And now, now, after describing the magnificent power of God that is exercised in the resurrection, the ascension, and the session, that is the seating of Jesus Christ in heavenly places, Paul then moved on to describe how that same resurrection power is at work personally and effectively in the lives of every single believer. And so I ask, how exactly does this power of God, how does it work in us? Well, Paul tells us. He goes on to explain that when we, when we ourselves were dead in sin, God made us alive. He raised us up and seated us with Christ in heavenly places. In chapter 2, Paul said, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so, my friends, in order for us to understand, in order for us to truly appreciate the powerful work of God in our salvation, we need to understand how very far God has brought us in Christ. In his commentary, Dr. Martin Lord-Jones said this. He said, we shall never have an adequate conception of the greatness of this salvation unless we realize that we were before this mighty power, what we were before this mighty power took hold of us. Unless we realize what we would still be if God had not intervened in our lives to to rescue us. Now, Jones went on to say, no man, no man will ever have a true conception of the biblical teaching with regard to redemption if he is not clear about the biblical doctrine of sin. So, Lord Jesus, help us. Help us this morning to understand the riches of your grace and the power that is revealed in Christ as it works out in our lives. Folks, in light of the fact that Valentine's Day was just this past Wednesday, it is entirely possible that some of you, especially you young men, visited the local jewelry store. And when you asked to see one of those beautiful diamond rings, the salesperson immediately pulled out some black piece of velvet cloth, and he placed that shiny ring on the cloth underneath of a thousand-watt light bulb. It was only then that the fiery brilliance of that diamond was dramatically magnified as it was displayed on that black velvet cloth. Well, 
in the same way, the majestic beauty of God's saving grace has been magnified as it is described for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But it is all the more brilliant when we hold it up against the black backdrop of man's total depravity, which is described for us in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, folks, over the past 30 years, this portion of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, has been, without doubt, the most frequently quoted portion of Scripture from this pulpit. And with that in mind, this morning, I don't really want to rush through it. I want our exposition to be rich. So, this morning, I would like to focus just on the black velvet cloth of man's depravity. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll break out that diamond and take a look at all of the different colors and all the different refractions that come from the beauty of God's grace. So this is a fair warning this morning. The study may be uncomfortable for some. Nevertheless, it is vitally important to each and every one of us to understand the depravity of man. Well, in order for us to comprehend the glorious power of God that he exercised when he raised us up together with Christ and seated us in heavenly places, first we need to plumb the depths, plumb the depths of our own sinful corruption. My outline for this morning, for you, if you are a note-taker, comes from John Stott. It's not original, but I loved it because it was simple and to the point. John Stott said, here are three points for these three verses. First, we were dead. Second, we were enslaved. And finally, we were condemned. In verse 1, Paul writes, and you, and you, you Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, folks, you should know that Paul is not using a figure of speech in this place, nor is he exaggerating. He is making a factual statement. He's actually describing the condition of every single human being who is outside of Jesus Christ, just like you and I were before God called us to himself. When he said you were dead, he was referring to spiritual death and not physical death. And that becomes obvious when you read the context of this verse. After all, Paul goes on to describe the activities of the Ephesians. He said they were living, yes, living in the passions of the flesh, and they were carrying out the desires of the body. And friends, these are physical activities. They're the physical activities of unbelieving men and women who are biologically alive, and yet they are spiritually dead. In order to help us understand what it means to be spiritually dead, Lloyd-Jones points to the words of the Lord Jesus that were recorded for us in the Gospel of John, where Jesus said this. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you that they know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We get that from John 17, 3. And so here in this place, Jesus equates true life, eternal life, with the knowledge of God. 
Therefore, since God is the source and the sustainer of all life, to be separated from God, to be separated from him, is to be separated from life. And therefore, to not know God is to be dead, spiritually dead, separated from God. Now remember, when God breathed the breath of life into the first man, all the way back in the, in the book of Genesis, and God placed him in the garden, he commanded the man. Do you remember what he commanded him? He said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. I put before you a literal smorgasbord of food for you to enjoy. However, however, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. And so there was one command, just one. One rule, one law. And even in his pristine condition, Adam rebelled against God. He transgressed the one command of God and was driven out of the garden, away from the presence of God. Although he lived physically another 930 years in the flesh, on that day when he transgressed the law of God, Adam died spiritually. The word of God is true. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so we see that Adam died spiritually, not physically, on that day. And because of sin, Adam was banned from the tree of life. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way. He said, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He does not hear. Your iniquities have made a, a separation from God, and that separation is what we know as spiritual death. In his letter to the Romans, Paul explained that man's separation from God, which began in Adam, then spread to all men. Paul writes this in Romans 5.12. He said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so not only has sin affected every single human being, but it has penetrated, it has contaminated every aspect of man's entire being, and we call that total depravity, total depravity. As a result of the fall of man, every part of man, his mind, his will, his emotions, and even his body have been corrupted by sin. While he may not be as bad as he possibly could be, there is no part of man's being that has not been tainted by sin. You see, sin infiltrates all of our motives. It gets into all of our thoughts. It corrupts our words and also our deeds. Some people will use the illustration of putting a, a drop of cyanide in a bucket of water. Because that one drop, that one drop of cyanide then infiltrates the entire bucket, corrupting it completely. 
Well, here in Ephesians 2, Paul uses two words. Two words that will describe the sinful depravity of man. When he said this, he said, you were dead. We've got that part. He said, you were dead in trespasses and sins. How were we dead? Well, we were dead in trespasses and sins. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these two words provide us with a a comprehensive summary of human evil. Let's try to understand it. Now, the word trespasses describes the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. And so it is that when our kids disobey their parents, when dad covets the neighbor's car, ooh, when mom values her children or her home more than God, they trans, transgress the law of the Lord. God has made a law. He's made that for our own good. You shall have no other gods before me, he said. But when we worship other things, when we worship the things of this world, we transgress the law of God, and that is a transgression. On the other hand, this word sin, this word sin literally speaks of missing the mark, falling short of the standard that was set by God. You've read this before. God said, he said, you must be holy as I am holy. How do you feel about that? Well, folks, to be honest, I have to confess that I miss that mark every single day of my life. These two words, trespass and sin, when we take them all together, they cover both the active and the passive aspects of human wrongdoing. We could call them sins of commission and sins of omission. You see, outside of Christ, we are both rebels and we're also failures. Rebels and failures outside of Christ. We do those things that we ought not to do and we leave undone those things which we ought to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. That's what Paul said to the Romans. Well, Solomon, Solomon described how our sins entrap us, how they entrap us, and how they hold us in bondage. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 22, he said, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Think of someone being tied up. Someone, oh, I can't help you. I'm being tied up right now. (laughs) Think of someone actually being tied up in the cords of their sin, which is what we once were in bondage, tied up, slaves to our sin. And that brings us to our second point where Paul said we are enslaved. We are enslaved to a sin. And he's talking about the Ephesians and who they were before Christ. Who they were before Christ set them free from this bondage. They were enslaved to sin. In verse 2, Paul said, And you, well, you were dead in trespass and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And over the years, I've had multiple conversations with people who have vigorously defended the freedom of their will. They're the captain 
of their own destiny. They do whatever they want to do, and they do it whenever they want to do it. And they would tell you, I have never been ensnared to anyone or anything because they are the captain of their own will. Well, Jesus addressed this exact issue of freedom with some of the Jews who were following him in the Gospel of John chapter 8. In verse 31, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, these words were offensive to these Jews who were following him, and they responded to him in boastful pride. In verse 33, they said, We're the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Did they forget about the Babylonians or maybe the Assyrians or, or maybe the Romans who were right there, right there, even at that time, keeping them in bondage? They must have forgotten. In my mind, I look at Jesus pausing for a moment saying, I can't believe they just said that. And then he responded with tremendous wisdom. He said this, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what he's getting at. That's the whole point. But you said you were never enslaved to anyone. But I'm telling you that if you practice sin, you are enslaved to sin. And then in verse 44, Jesus confronted their ethnic pride. Oh, we're Abraham's children. When he said this, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. You see, he is uncovering the real bondage, that spiritual bondage in which they were dead in their sins and transgressions. Folks, unregenerate men those who are separated from Christ are somehow under the delusion that they are free. They're free. They choose to kill the infant that is in their womb. They are free to choose their own sexual identity. They're free to abuse their bodies with whatever substance they choose to abuse. After all, they're free, and they can do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. But in reality, according to the word of God, they are blind. They are blind to the spiritual forces of darkness that have them in bondage. They are enslaved to sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3 and 4, Paul writes, and he said this, he said, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Regarding them, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is, in, who is the image of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones again said, this is the condition of man under the dominion of the devil. He is not free. He is not free to not sin. He is a child of disobedience. And in the words of the Lord Jesus... If you sin, you are a slave to sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, Paul describes what we might call a threefold cord that holds sinful man in spiritual bondage. No doubt you're familiar with this unholy trio 
that we say is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Man is in bondage. He's enslaved to three different things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, in verse 2, Paul reminds these Ephesians that they previously patterned their lives after the course of this world. Now, the word world that is used here is cosmos. Cosmos. You've heard this many times before. But in the Bible, this word is used 186 times, and in most places, it has an evil connotation. Cosmos has an evil connotation. For instance, here in James chapter 4 and verse 4, James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, friendship with the cosmos, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the cosmos makes himself an enemy of God. Those who are separated from God are held in captivity to the corrupt, godless system of this present evil age. They're like lemmings, lemmings rushing to their own demise by the influence of the society. Oh, are we running? Are we running? Yes, let's all run. Let's all jump off the cliff. Okay. That's lemmings, but that's the spirit of the age in which we live. In the opening words of his epistle to the Galatians, Paul describes the Lord Jesus as the one who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus came to deliver us from this present evil age, from the corruption that is in the world because of sin. Well, in the second half of verse 2, we learn that those who follow the course of the world, the course of this present cosmos, are inevitably subject to the ruler of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, here Paul acknowledges that the devil, well, the devil is real. He's not some cartoon character that is etched into the side of a can of ham, right? That's not who he is. He is a powerful spirit being who rules over an army of fallen angels. So when Paul speaks of the air, the prince of the power of the air, he's alluding to the invisibility of unclean spirits that fill the atmosphere around the earth the prince of the power of the air, invisible, and yet they surround the earth like the atmosphere. Well, this prince of darkness, he patiently, deceitfully, unceasingly labors at his evil plan to usurp God's authority and to destroy man who was created in the image of God. Listen, although, although he possesses great knowledge... Satan is not omniscient. Although he is a powerful being, he is not omnipotent. And since he can only be in one place at one time, he is not omnipresent. One pastor was talking to someone, and he said, Oh, Satan chased me all week long. And the pastor looked at me and said, Why would he leave Washington and come after you? I don't know. When I'm thinking of who this enemy of our soul is, I'm reminded of a rabid dog, 
a rabid dog that is insane and bent on destruction. Nevertheless, we can take great comfort in knowing that while he may be a rabid dog, he's on a leash. He is on a leash. You see, while Jesus may have called him the prince of the world, of the power of the air, Paul calls him the God of this age, God alone, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, is the sovereign Lord and ruler over all things in heaven and earth. And as we see in the book of Job, Satan must submit to God's will. John Calvin said this. He said, there is no obscurity in the apostles' language here. All men who live according to the world, that is, according to the inclinations of their flesh, are here declared to be under the reign of Satan. Well, it's easy for us to blame wicked men in this present evil age. The wicked men of our world, men like Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un, it's easy to rail against a, a group of people like the Iranians But in reality, we need to understand that the real enemies of mankind are not men, not men at all. They're powerful forces of darkness that we fight against. In chapter 6, Paul lifts our eyes off of the symptoms and focuses our attention on the heart of the real problem when he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, if we were to truly understand where the real battle is going on, we wouldn't spend our time and spend our energy ranting and raving over the puppets that Satan uses to work his destructive plan on mankind. Instead, we will put on the full armor of God and give ourselves to prayer, as the Apostle Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. Our battle it's not with flesh and blood. Our battle is spiritual, with the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. We hone in on people that the enemy is using when we really need to hone in on our enemy and his minions. Well, friends, because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, the third cord that Paul speaks of, the final bondage that ensnares sinful men is the bondage of the flesh, the world, the devil, and the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, among whom, that is, among the children of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So when Paul speaks of the flesh here, he's not referring to that tissue or muscle fiber that covers our bony skeletons. He's speaking of the fallen, self-centered, sinful nature that inspires our corrupt thoughts, that motivates our lawless behaviors. In Galatians 5, Paul describes what he calls the works of the flesh. When he said this, he says, and now the works of the flesh are evident. They're evident, they're clear, they're objective. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about the, the fruit, the, the, the works of our flesh. Our sinful nature is manifest in these different things. And while this is certainly not an all-inclusive, exhaustive list of the works of the flesh, it is sufficient. It is sufficient to bring conviction to most of us if you have lived more than 20 years. That's my thought. As I'm going through this list, I'm going, boy, if you're 20 years or older, you, you really understand this list. While this is certainly not exhaustive, it gives us a good representation of the works of our flesh. You may not struggle with immorality, but maybe your gossip brings dissension to the workplace. You may not involve yourself with sorcery. You know the word sorcery here is a word in Greek, pharmakia, and it speaks of drug use. Sorcery, pharmakia, drug use. But if you struggle with jealousy, maybe, and that struggle with jealousy then tends to lead into strife in your relationships, that is, in fact, the works of the flesh. Well, before we were regenerated, before we were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, before Christ set us free, we were subject to oppressive influences that came from both without and within. You see, there are enemies from without, but there's also that enemy within, my sinful flesh. While we ourselves were disobedient, the solicitation of the fallen world orchestrated by the prince of darkness also held us in captivity. It inflamed our fleshly desires, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But because every human being has inherited a sinful nature from Adam. And because we transgress God's law and we miss the mark of God's holiness, all of us, each and every one of us, were guilty before God and deserving of God's just and holy wrath before God did a wonderful work of salvation in us. In the Gospel of John, we find these words the words of John the Baptist who said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains. Think of this as, as a weight. There's a weight on all of those who are outside of Christ. It is a weight of God's wrath that bends them down bends them down. It is a weight of that which one day will be visited upon them in all of its fullness at the end day. As we close this morning, it's important that we understand, apart from Christ, man is not merely sick. Man is not merely disabled by sin. Paul says he is dead, and you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Man is not merely going through a, a bad time in his life. 
he is eternally lost. He is separated from God. And friends, there is no therapy. There is no medication. There is no surgical intervention that can restore man, sinful man, that can restore his spirit to communion with God. He cannot receive life by any of the works of his own hands. He is in a desperate condition under the just and holy wrath of God, and only God, only God can rescue him. As we look for a biblical example of this, I think one of the best examples that we could find is in the book of Ezekiel. Do you remember this in Ezekiel chapter 37? It's a wonderful image where God takes the prophet Ezekiel and he brings him down in the valley of dry bones, right in the middle of all of these dead, dried up corpses that are laying all over the place. And he said to him, son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? So when we look in in, in Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses, and we read of the depravity of man, the natural response is, can man live? Is it possible that these dead, dried-up bones that are all around, is it possible that they can come to life somehow? Ezekiel answered God with great wisdom. He said, oh God, you know. (laughs) You know. In other words, I don't have a clue. But you know, God, you know. And then God commanded him to prophesy, to speak the word of God to those bones. And as he did, in verse 7, there was a sound. Can you imagine that sound being in a valley of all these dried up bones? And there's a rattling, there's a sound, and it's coming. And it says, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there was sinews, that's muscle fiber, on those bones, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. What's happening here? What's happening here is a, is a resurrection, A resurrection, bones that were long dead, dried up. God has brought his resurrection power. How? By the word of God. The resurrection power came upon these dead, dried up bones. And all of a sudden, there's a human body standing there. Ezekiel spoke again. And what happened? Breath came into the nostrils of this body And they stood and lived, and they were on their feet. And it was a great, exceedingly great army that was standing before the prophet Ezekiel. And so, my friends, even today, even today, as the word of God is proclaimed, as you go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creatures, you are going in a valley of dead, dry bones As Paul said, and you were dead in transgressions and sins. Go to your workplace. There's a valley of dry bones all around you. And what is the power of God that brings resurrection? It is the word of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings life to those who are dead. And you, if you are in Christ this morning, you are living proof. Living proof that God raises the dead to life again. Well, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, 
left his home in glory. He put on human flesh and came to dwell among us. It was Jesus who lived a perfect, sinless life, perfect life of obedience to the law of God that none of us could. We couldn't possibly obey the law of God. But Jesus did. And then he died on the cross as a substitute for all of those in every age who would believe the word of God. So the question this morning is, do you believe? Do you believe the word of God? Have you experienced the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit who has raised you to new life in Christ? Old things are passed away and all things are made new. Are you a new creature in Christ? You see, this is the glory of God left to ourselves. What is there? There is transgression. There is sin. There is death. But in Christ, there is life. What is eternal life? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God, the true and living God, that they might know you. Do you know God this morning? Have you responded to the gospel with simplicity of saying, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. I believe that Christ came. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose. I believe that he has ascended, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father where he is praying even for me this morning. We've heard some of his prayer in the inspired prayers of the Apostle Paul. We've listened in this morning as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And we can apply that even to our own life because it is, after all, the inspired word of the living God. Father, we come humbly before you this morning, submitting to you and submitting to your word. We give you thanks. We give you thanks for the marvelous, miraculous work of redemption that you have done in your people. Thank you for rescuing us from the pit of darkness. Thank you for delivering us from the power of the wicked one. Thank you, O Lord God, for transforming us into the life and into the image of your Son. Continue that good work you've begun within us until the day when we see you face to face. I pray that in Christ's holy name. Amen.